0: We have been making great progress on our diversity and inclusion efforts, but it's not enough. And I think we can use this as more of a wake-up call and a catalyst for change.
1: We've been doing lots of the same things other companies have been doing over the last several years, but I think there's, there's an awful lot more that we can do, and we will get much more aggressive.
2: When George Floyd was killed last spring, it raised cries for change that stretched from city streets to corporate offices.
0: And now, eight months later, we're starting to see that push for change crystallize into action.
2: Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who like me are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray here with my amazing co-host, Ellen McGirt.
0: (laughs) I love that intro, Alan. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm really excited about our show today. You know, last season we heard CEOs say again and again and again that the murder of George Floyd really caused them to listen to their employees in new ways. And as we just heard from Kohl's Michelle Gass and Cisco's Chuck Robbins at the top of the show, it prompted company leaders to take a much closer look at their own progress on diversity and inclusion.
2: Yeah, that's right, Ellen. I think there was a real change here. I mean, we have polling Mm -hmm. showing that the overwhelming majority now say this is an area where they need to do much better. Uh, That's why I'm really glad today we're speaking to two business leaders who are in the middle of the fight to do better. One is Charles Phillips, who is co-founder of a group called 110 that's focused on hiring black and brown people from disadvantaged backgrounds. The other is Refinitive's David Craig, who is working with us at Fortune to push companies to track and share their diversity numbers through an initiative called Measure Up.
0: These are two really great stories, but let's start with Charles Phillips. He's had a really impressive career. He's currently managing partner of Recognize, a technology investment company, and co-chair of the Black Economic Alliance, which we'll hear a little bit more about. He's former CEO and chair of Infor, a global software company that was recently sold to Koch Industries, and he's the former president of Oracle, and before that had a busy career on Wall Street, and he was captain in the U.S. Marine Corps. So, phew, he's been busy, but he's got a lot to talk about.
2: Really, really impressive career. But before we dive into the 110 initiative, I should mention that, being that we're journalists, Ellen, we, we did ask Charles <laughs> why he chose to sell his company to Coke rather than going public. I was pretty surprised when they announced that move.
0: <laughs> you know, Alan, I'm, I'm gonna be honest here. When we asked him that question, he walked us through a technical analysis that I'm pretty sure I didn't quite understand, but I did understand two things. One is that the board thought this was a very good idea, and the second was that Coke was their largest customer, which I didn't know.
2: I didn't know that either, and it makes a lot of sense when you consider that. But let's hear what Charles had to say about the 110 initiative. Charles, let's dive in on 110. Tell us a little bit about it because I I have to say watching this debate over the last year, I feel like the business community has gotten new seriousness around diversity, equity, and inclusion topics. And 110 is one of the signals of that. Can can you describe what it is and why it's
1: important? Well, you put your finger on it. It's a unique time period. And so we decided uh, to take advantage of this opportunity. So what happened was the Business Council had asked myself and Ken Frazier to come on and talk about kind of the state of Black America. Uh, this was kind of in this past summer when everyone was thinking about this and right after George Floyd. A lot, lot of people were concerned. And so I got many invites invite to speak to networks like that. But Ken and I spoke and we said, we shouldn't just go on and talk about a, the Black experience. Why don't we have an agenda, ask them to do something? And this is a unique moment. Let's take advantage of it. And so uh, having done the work at the Black Economic Alliance, I said, why don't we challenge them to actually create one million jobs for Black people over the next 10 years? Let's propose it and just see what they say. And so that's exactly what we did the next morning. And to our surprise, it, it resonated. People were like, well, how would you do that? And so we immediately got off that call and started doing the work. And uh, I think we had 38 companies to sign up right away.
0: So what has to happen inside a corporation or an organization of any size really to make sure that people who are recruited in find a pathway forward because that has really been one of the biggest barriers or the some of the internal the internal barriers the internal systems that just aren't prepared to welcome say someone who doesn't have a four-year degree or doesn't come from central casting what work have you done on that
1: yeah well even before you get there they have to find people and so a lot of the problem was the friction and finding people who are, you know, don't live where companies are headquarters. In some cases, they're segmented just by history and different neighborhoods. So how do you find them? And so the idea is, can we take the friction out of the system, connect them to job training networks that exist? There's thousands of them out there, not all of them work. And so you have to have some mechanism for authenticating them, an accreditation system. So number one, you got to find a person and get them the right skill sets And, wrap around services because they have child care issues, they have transportation issues, they have many other issues. And so we have to solve for that as well. And our goal is to have a a placement rate of at least 85% that if we send you someone, you have to have confidence, they're gonna work out 85% of the time. So then once they get there, to your point, uh, we have what we call a community of practice for all the companies, because they all have the same issues. And so we wanna share information across them, also create a cohort of 110, uh, kind of a graduating class where so they stay connected as an affinity group. One of the issues, they're by themselves. And so yeah. they can stay connected with the group and we can share best practices amongst themselves and give them encouragement that will help. And then get them a mentor. So we're coming up with all these ideas on how to attract them over time. So it's not just a placement service. And that's one of the most valuable things that companies want. It can you help me retain them as well?
2: So you're talking about 110 being a hiring agency and to some degree being a playing a training function.
1: Well, I would say 110 is an organization that hires hiring agencies, and so there's a network of these training organizations. Like I said, hundreds of them around the country, and they're all different. You know, in every different city, and so we have to find the ones that work authenticate them, like I said, and then connect them to the companies. On the demand side of it, we talk to other the companies, what are you going to hire for the next 12 months, what location, what job role, same thing, what industries, and we connect those two things together because that's what was missing, that connectivity.
2: And And how do you make sure with all this work that the one million hired are incremental, that they aren't people who would have been hired anyway, just
1: through different channels? Uh, we're pretty certain that that's not the case because they would have been <laughs> they're not hired them for years. Yeah. And so if, if uh, even if it's not incremental, uh, that's not our worry, because these are people without college degrees that just is absolutely don't have access to these companies. So, by, de- so by
2: definition, they by do,
1: definition, they yeah, don't have they, college they, degrees. They don't have that, that's what we're focused on. Now, there's yeah. other organizations doing, you know, the college graduates recruiting yeah. on campus. We'll let that people focus on that work, but there's a much greater number of people who just have no pathway to building wealth and getting a job other than a minimum wage job, that is a big cohort. That's the reason why household wealth in the Black community is 10% of the white community. Homeownership is about 41% today. It's the same as it was in 1968 when Martin Luther King gave his last speech, the same number. So we got to do something different. And what's been holding us back is we can't create intergenerational wealth. And so the masses is what we needed to impact and we need scale.
0: And I'm assuming this means also uh, formerly incarcerated folks as well.
1: Formerly incarcerated as well. So keep in mind, only about 23% of black people have college degrees. So by definition, if you're not dealing with this other cohort, you're not really you know, moving the needle.
0: Right, right. No, that makes perfect sense. And I can imagine that you have done some thinking and modeling about the economic ripple effect if these 1 million people are successful. Can you help us paint a picture of that?
1: So we uh, looked at the work done by Raj Chetty at Harvard. So he's probably done the best work on this. And typically, if a family starts in the lowest quartile of wealth in the country, by the second generation they're at least in the third quartile, and sometimes better than that. So other immigrant groups transition much quicker. We don't. We just stay in that fourth. Quartile, And the reason is, is the type of work that you get, how early you're exposed to a career track after about 13 or 14. If you're not living around people who are working and seeing people who are working to have a career path, you don't know what your path is. And so you're not exposed to different things. And so we analyze all of that. It could be tremendous if we can get a million people in these types of jobs because by the second generation, their kids are gonna have even better jobs. The other work that was interesting is if you look at all of the things we're worried about, whether it's crime or having your kids have a better education, healthcare, all of that gets better if someone has a job. They have a good job, you, you kind of end up paying fewer entitlements to them because they're working, contributing, and paying taxes. And so we look at it holistically as well as good for the country. So the way we sold it to the CEOs was by saying the demographics are changing whether you like it or not. That's just a fact. And so that means your future customers are going to look like this. Your future uh, employee pool is going to look like this. And so it's in your interest to have them you know, creating wealth and growing and be ready for the next generation of workers you have to hire. here
2: with Joe Yukazoglu, who is CEO of Deloitte U.S., and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us, and thanks for your support of our second
3: season. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here.
2: Over the last decade, we've seen more and more CEOs speaking out on social issues, issues like gun control, gay rights, racial justice. But that really reached a peak in 2020 with the outpouring of business commentary on the George Floyd killing. And then again in January, when the
3: mob stormed the Capitol. What's going on here? Well, the last number of months have clearly been a test, and I hope there's a general consensus that business has passed. You know, there have been so many moments over the past number of months where we in business have demonstrated not just the willingness, But the imperative to speak out for what we believe in, to call out improper conduct and help drive change in society, our people expect that. Our clients expect that. I think this is at the core of what we talk about in terms of stakeholder capitalism. I also think, Alan, that there is a growing realization that if we as business leaders don't speak out, who will? And business is arguably the last trusted institution in society, trust in business is actually gone up during the pandemic. And as a result, we have a responsibility to help lead our people through these really difficult events. You have a responsibility, Joe, but you also have a risk. How do you balance that? I have consistently seen that in making that calculation, business leaders have come to the conclusion that the risk of not speaking out is greater than the risk of speaking up. Will you get 100% alignment around the message? No, but the risk to the goodwill of your people, to the allegiance of your customers, is actually greater if you're unwilling to share what you as an organization stand for. And that is more important than the potential that some percentage will not be aligned with the message that you're sharing. Joe, thank you.
0: So we're gonna to talk to Charles about his own career and leadership style in just a few minutes. But as Fritz has promised, let's hear from David Craig, the CEO of Refinitiv, who's partnered with us at Fortune on our own diversity initiative, Measure Up.
2: So Refinitiv is a big data company that spun out from Thomson Reuters a couple of years ago, but let's let David tell us
4: the details. Today, we operate in 190 countries, uh, distributing data and analytics And information on companies and markets for investors and traders and wealth managers in the financial community. We have been collecting what is known as ESG data in uh, environment, social and governance for many, many years. It's, It's a well understood area, but it's been developing recently. And we saw the opportunity to increase and include the data and the metrics around ethnicity and race. Um, recognizing that both investors and companies wanted to focus on this. They wanted more transparency. They wanted more understanding of what they were doing. Um, and then, of course, the events of George Floyd had happened last May, and that really gave an accelerated um, rationale uh, and focus and energy behind what I hope will be a, a, an extraordinary initiative to try and bring transparency to the area of ethnicity.
0: You know we are in an era where people, leaders are really called upon to have difficult conversations, to take public stands, and you can even within their organizations. And I'm always love to hear your take on where this work and transparency and data help leaders be more courageous and just refine their thinking around these issues and what they want to say publicly. Can you talk a little bit about that?
4: Well, I'll reflect on the events after the George Floyd murder last year, and and many companies signed statements of intent and declarations of supporting ethnicity and broader rights for the workforce. And, And like many firms, we have a large global employee base, including in the US. We did a lot of listening, and we learned quite a lot through that listening. And one of the things we learned was don't just say that you're going to do something, but do something. And I think courage is about moving from words to actually taking action. I think courage in the companies that we're working and we're seeing contribute already to measure up is having the courage to be transparent and say, look, here's, here's our numbers, here's our metrics on the number of employees we have from a minority group, the, the pay equality or inequality that exists. And actually saying, we're brave enough and bold enough to declare our own numbers. We may not be happy with them, but we're going to make progress. But in doing so, we're, we're meeting that. Question that employees were saying, which is don't just say that you are going to do something about this, but, but we'll measure you on your actions, not just your words. So I think courage is being transparent. I think courage is taking the initiative to measure things. And, and I think courage is actually recognizing that, you know, what gets measured gets managed, as the old um, adage say. And we've seen this with gender in the last 10 years. We've seen that actually measuring gender and having plans and concrete goals has made a significant difference across many countries in the world. And gender and ethnicity and race are different but connected. And I think there's a model that says we can repeat the same actions so that the courageous CEOs around the world can take action, a meaningful action, to to solve what is a substantial issue in the United States, in the UK, many other parts of the world.
2: David, what's the long-term goal of Measure Up, in your view?
4: The, the long-term goal is to essentially encourage investors and companies to create more opportunities and equality, particularly around race and ethnicity um, in the U.S., in the U.K., across all of the companies they are, and to basically help solve some of the social injustice that is with us and has been there for many years.
2: And and so if somebody is listening to this podcast and wants to be part of the Measure uh, Project, what do they do?
4: Well, um, you contact us at Refinitiv or through Fortune. There is a tool that is available which explains the methodology and and how to measure the the 20 metrics or so that are required to do this. It's a very simple process to submit. Uh, Of course, you have to go through your own internal measurement and work out what data you have on your employee base and how to collect that and clean it and and do that. And then you make the submission into the ESG database that we run and collect for the industry. There is an ask from me on on timing. We have a deadline for February the twenty eighth, so make sure that you get into the ranking. And we'd like as many companies on top of the hundred or so that are already going to submit um, to do that, so that the benchmark is as as valid and as broad as it possibly can, and insightful and encourages action.
0: And the, to build on that very practical uh, question is: what if your data collection just isn't where it needs to be? Can you submit? the data that you have and continue to build your efforts internally?
4: Yes. So The database and the data methodology that we have across ESG has several hundred metrics and many companies will focus on some and not be complete on others. Some companies have submitted just some of the metrics, uh, like overall number, but they haven't done, say, payer quality, uh, because they haven't managed to get to that yet. So it is a bit of a journey, but I think actually embarking on the journey is a start. Companies can make a big difference by the opportunities you create, the employees that you have, um, your commitment to driving equality is very, very important. And so you have to try and sell the bigger picture and the mission that you're on. And the final thing that I would add is we've talked a lot about companies. We haven't talked about investors and the amount of requests that we had for our ESG data after George Floyd went up by a factor of five because investors subtly said, we want to understand the companies we're investing in wow. and what their stance on this. So it's an issue for the companies and um, it's becoming a bigger issue for investors, the funds, uh, the asset owners as well. So there's a, there's a momentum here. And I would encourage everyone who's listening to this to be part of that momentum. I think this is really important. We can make a difference. We've proven we can do this with gender. That journey isn't over. We're starting the journey on ethnicity. And I just invite everyone to be on that journey. It's it's for everyone's good.
0: Alan, in my view, this is a pretty big deal for Fortune. We're changing our data. We're refocusing our efforts on measuring something that's brand new for us.
2: David Craig said it well. What gets measured gets managed. I think Transparency, putting the data out there in the public is one way of assuring, Ellen, that the changes of the last year become permanent, that we see a permanent difference in the way companies deal with the diversity issue. So I I, I think it's incredibly important that companies uh, uh, start to make this data public.
0: Um, By the way, for anybody who's listening who's got access to a big company, is a big CEO, any of that above, we want your data. Please learn how you can get involved and measure up. Just head over to our show notes, you'll find a link and you can learn more there. Let's go back to Charles Phillips. I think if 110 is is as successful as I hope it will be, the work that all big companies are doing to be more transparent and more inclusive is really going to pay off.
2: Charles, I want to talk a little bit about you and your background because, you know, you you were successful on Wall Street, successful on in Silicon Valley, both places that were, where there's massive underrepresentation of of African Americans. You were a successful entrepreneur. You built a multi-billion-dollar company and sold it to Koch Industries. What in your background prepared you for this incredibly successful career?
1: Yeah, I, I tell people that a lot of. Some of it's luck, and some of it's just proximity. I was fortunate to be around someone when I was 15 who exposed me to computer science. And I uh, walked into what was called a Heathkit store at the time, kind of like huh. a radio show. Yeah. You had to build computers yeah. back then, so I don't remember that. I, I, I remember say, that. E- Ellen, uh, Ellen, Ellen's too young. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were too young for that. Uh, no. And I didn't even know what it was. I thought it was in an auto parts store, all these parts everywhere. And it just happened to be random in the mall. And the guy behind the counter you know what you're looking at. I go, no, not really. I'm just curious, just walked in here browsing. Because, he well, we build computers here. Every Tuesday and Thursday night, we have this club we get together. Why don't you come on by and just see, you know, see how you like it? And uh, these are all 40, 50-year-old guys who didn't look like me, <laughs> had no reason to help me, but uh, I immediately fell in love with my first computer in the first 30 days. And 30 days after that, wrote my first application. And I said, you know, I want to do this computer stuff. This is fun, it's immediate gratification. I can learn this, it's got rules. Anything with rules, I can learn and so i want to do that but i had no idea how big it was going to be but i then took i went to the air force academy took my commission in the marine corps i just happened to be at the time when the ARPANET was being built in the military so i got ah. to see the early versions of the internet early versions of email bulletin boards with the release of the early versions of social media all that stuff at you know a very young age because all my dad was in the military um, all my swore Marines. My son just got back from Okinawa. So we have a military family. So that's what I knew. I would not have done that unless someone kind of showed me a way.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned as you as you exited the the military and joined uh, Wall Street first, and as you moved up in your career, what was keeping other executives of color from succeeding?
1: Yeah, I do think. Growing up in the military family helped me because I was moving every two to three years. You are forced to get along with people, and you're forced to figure out people quickly in different environments. You're always a new kid in school, so there are downsides to that. Of course, you don't have the friend who's two years old who lived next door to you your whole life, but you get comfortable in every room. You're not, you know, worried about if someone doesn't look like you because that's your whole life. And so, I do think that prepared me where. I you know for every career or whatever who i was interacting with you figured it out and then secondly I, I like to say the military is one of the few places where you you get formal leadership training you learn how to lead people how to study team dynamics and understand what can make a team work so those two things i think together i had a different perspective whenever whatever i went into i knew i would figure it out get people to work together you know it's not impossible that was just my attitude i saw my dad do the same thing for so many years and, uh, and then th- thirdly, my father always told me, it's like, do something that can be measured. You're not going to have any friends to begin with because you don't know people. You're not from New York. You're not in business. So either do law, do finance, do computers, something where the results are clear. You can be measured. You put points on the board or you didn't. So if you look at my career, that's what it's always been. <laughs> Charles, I want to take you back to the 110 effort and its chances of succeeding.
2: A lot of people think this is only going to happen if there's a full commitment at the top. And of course, at the very top of corporate America, you have boards. We had a wonderful conversation in last year's season with the former CEO of Xerox, who I'm sure you know well. A friend uh, of mine. uh, Who who said she was constantly being asked by people to recommend someone for, for the board. And she would say, well, what are you looking for? And they would say, well, we're looking for a former CEO. She said, "That is not gonna work. Uh, That's like me. There's no one else out there. Uh, So, 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 how do you crack
1: the board problem? That is a tough one, and that's what people are looking for. So, we're just telling people you have to uh, change the profile and hire. You know, if you're looking for a board member, you can't replicate what you've always done. And actually, it's good for you to have some different people in the room. It's the chicken or the egg problem. So, people are starting to do that, as I mentioned earlier." A lot of black executives, Ursula included, we all got together and compiled a list of the next generation executives who need to be on boards. I think we have a couple other people on that list now, I can't remember. But we've been providing that to people saying they have the skill set and value added that you need. Don't worry about their title. And not everybody needs to be a CEO. In fact, they may be a better board member because they have more time and more focused. And so we just push them to kind of stretch their thinking a little bit. And it's starting to happen. It takes some time, but it's starting to happen.
0: I'm curious if you're thinking that what it takes to be successful at the very top, either in the C-suite or on boards, is changing at all, given that we are in such dire straits. We need to have business aligned with bigger purpose, everything from equity and justice to, to climate change. And do you, Are we looking for a different kind of person now, someone who is clear on that purpose and can stand up, typically under enormous pressure, on on pressing issues? Are, are those things coming up? Are they bubbling up as, as skills, as strengths?
1: It's funny, on one of the boards I'm on today, we were doing succession planning and they were asking what attributes are different now than when we, from the last year. Yeah. These are the exact same things that came up. And it is changing for a couple of reasons. One, it's hard to avoid because people are asking you, but two, the employees are demanding it. So if you don't take views on that, it's gonna be hard to attract and retain. The right people. I mean, I remember anytime something happens. I mean, I get hundreds of emails from employees. Are you going to say something on this? What's your view on this? What are we doing? You know, my theory on it is, a lot of employees had. You know, they came. They were in universities. They had the institutional structure there. They're not there anymore. Secondly, they may have at church or they may have been around family, but right now all that they're not around that. So the institution becomes a company, the structure that they were looking for their value system. And it took me a while to realize that that they are looking for more than just a leader of this operational thing. They want a value and purpose. me, The most popular call I would do each year, I would do a values call. They say, what's our company values? I would say the same thing for nine years in a row, but it would be packed. People just wanted to hear say it and nothing's changed. We're still who we are. Why are we really exist? So I once I realized that, then I did more of it. Boy, I think that's so right. And, and I think a
2: lot of people don't realize that. You know, when I, I spent a couple of years running the Pew Research Center, and we did a bunch of research on the millennial generation. and what, In when Research you, House, I know it well. Yeah. yeah, and you look at that, and what you realize is they're less likely to belong to a church, as you said. They're, they are slower to get married. They're not belongers. They don't join social clubs or, yeah. or country clubs. And so the employer becomes, in some ways, their main formal attachment to society. And where earlier generations might have said, I go to work to make money, and then I'll go to church or the Rotary Club to do good in the world, this generation is putting it all on the employer.
1: Yeah, yeah. And what the thing that's happening now is investors are doing the same thing. So I just raised a fund to invest in tech companies and the LPs want to know what we're doing in this area before they will invest. So it's coming from all angles now. Yeah. Which is a good thing. 2020 was such a unique
2: year in so many ways. And you did have this moment where companies... Uh, you know, we did surveys that showed 96% of Fortune 500 CEOs said DEI is one of my top strategic priorities. How long does that last? How, do you, how can you be sure that it's not going to dissipate in 2021 or 2022?
1: Well, I have to say that is what I'm worried about amongst my friends. That's what we talk about. Like, this is a moment. Let's take advantage of it. Let us hope it lasts. But let's put some systems in place to make sure it lasts, mm-hmm. which is why we're doing 110 and things like that. Uh, but it's a risk because, you know, CEOs are busy and cultural moment can pass. We're under something else. But we are trying to keep it in the front forefront of people's minds. And we're working with a lot of organizations to do that, just to make sure that we get maximum impact out of this.
2: Charles Phillips, thank you so much for being with us on Leadership Next.
1: Alan, Alan, good to see you guys as always. Thanks a lot.
2: Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala and Wyatt Orm, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media.